0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done.
1: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and Premier Sponsor q Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang.
2: in San Francisco and this is Bloomberg technology coming up in the next hour meta takes a beating as the making of the metaverse gets more and more expensive it is the second straight quarter of yearly revenue declines ever but there are some bright spots for Facebook and Instagram we'll discuss plus Elon Musk is in the building at the Twitter office where on Friday he will address the staff he reportedly plans to cut by 75% more details on a Bloomberg scoop in a moment. And it is one of the biggest IPOs of the year. The CEO of Intel's self-driving startup, Mobileye, tells us about the long road ahead. All of that in a moment, but first I want to dig a little deeper now into Meta's results with Jasmine Enberg, principal analyst at Insider Intelligence. Jasmine, of course, focusing in on the forecast and also profit, quarterly profit being cut basically in half. I mean, that's a big number for a company as big as Meta.
3: Yeah, and we're also coming up on Meta's one year anniversary of the name change. And what I would start with is that Meta today is a far cry from what Facebook was just one year ago. As Facebook, the company was able to generate double-digit growth every year, revenue growth every year. And last year, it posted about 37% revenue growth. Now it had two consecutive quarters of revenue declines and at Insider Intelligence, our brand new forecast shows that Meta is going to post its first ever year-over-year decline in worldwide ad revenues for the full year 2022 as well.
2: Now, let's talk about the bets that Meta is making, the two big ones, the shift to Reels and also the Metaverse. Is there any evidence that either of these are actually paying off?
3: Well, Zuckerberg's bet on the metaverse is clearly jeopardizing the short-term health of its business. I will say that there is, you know, some business interest in the metaverse. We have seen some activations from some businesses, but those activations are also coming out of experimental budgets for the first part for the most part, which means that they're also potentially able to be cut um, if these macroeconomic conditions weaken. Now, Reels is where Facebook and and Instagram should really be focusing on right now. It is where the competition within social media remains. And Reels is still lagging very far behind TikTok. um, And it needs to catch up in order to be able to continue to grow its ad business.
2: Now, uh, let's talk about the broader changes happening to the ad business. You've obviously got Meta hitting back at Apple for the changes that Apple uh, is making that are impacting not just Meta, but other social media companies. How much bigger of a cut is Apple going to get and how much smaller of a cut is Facebook or Meta going to get? And what does that mean to you over the longer term?
3: Yeah, I mean, the effects of Apple's privacy changes continue to plague all of the social platforms. We have seen that in multiple earnings that have already come out. You know, Apple in some ways may be benefiting. It's also launched its own ad business. Um, But, you know, these companies really need to work to uh, develop and deploy effective solutions for ad attribution if they want to keep up and continue to grow their businesses in this new environment.
2: Twitter was supposed to report earnings today. Uh, didn't happen. That was at least the estimated date. Of course, now we have Elon Musk going into Twitter today with the kitchen sink, a very powerful metaphor there. there are, uh, we're reporting that uh, you know, he's planning to cut 75% of Twitter's workforce. What do you imagine happens on Friday?
3: Well, Musk has every reason to want to close this deal by Friday. If it doesn't close, of course, this this case goes to court and it's likely that that Twitter will win anyway and Musk will be able to avoid some of the reputational damage that might ensue if if the case actually goes to trial. Now, a Musk-owned Twitter is likely going to result in even more chaos. We already know that the employee morale is low. Some employees have left. Others are really concerned about massive of layoffs, and that is a valid concern. Now, in terms of how that might affect its business, you know, even if these massive cuts don't take place or don't take place immediately, just the fact that this idea is being floated around by Musk, it's maybe enough to spook some advertisers as well. You know, advertisers want to spend their ad dollars on platforms that they view as stable. And right now, that certainly isn't Twitter.
2: What's your sense of what these, you know, potentially 5,500 people at Twitter do that he seems to think are expendable? And if the platform can be run with, you know, the necessary oversight with 2,000 people?
3: So I think where these cuts take place, if they do take place, will give us a really good indication of what Musk intends to do with the platform. If, for example, he reduces headcount significantly in the ads division at Twitter, it's an indication that he may be making good on his promise to reduce Twitter's reliance on advertising. He could potentially cut in the content moderation division, which could um, prove or show that he intends to loosen some of those content moderation guardrails, which is also something that he has been really, vocal about
2: so given all of these massive you've got major evolutions changes happening at facebook you've got potentially on friday twitter becoming a private company you've got apple moving in and trying to take a bigger cut of of social media ad revenue you mentioned how different meta looks today than it did a year ago how different does the social media industry look a year from now than it looks today
3: Different. I actually believe that the time is ripe for some more disruption in the social media industry. I mean, TikTok was the biggest disruptor to um, usage and to to revenue in the social media landscape for many, many years. But we're seeing now that there are some other social apps that are starting to bubble up and capture the attention of the coveted Gen Z audience. And I believe that we'll start to see even more of that in 2023 and um, have these established social platforms really continue to, to scratch to uh, keep their audiences and h- continue to grow their businesses.
2: I wonder what it means for Snap. We heard from Snap CEO Evan Spiegel at the Wall Street Journal Technology Conference. He blasted the metaverse saying something along the lines of the last thing I want to do when I get home from work after a long day is live inside a computer Um, You know, there are two questions in there. A, what does this mean for Snap? And B, does this, you know, uh, you know, infatuation that some brands might have with the metaverse just just dry up, especially as we we go into a pronounced economic downturn?
3: Yeah, so Snap has positioned itself as, as anti-metaverse for, for quite some time now. It's also been really susceptible to a lot of the challenges that are plaguing all of the social platforms. We saw that in its Q3 Q three earnings just last week. Uh, part of the problem is that Snap is considered a less essential platform than, say, Meta, although Meta is experiencing cuts as well. Um, and But it's easy for advertisers to justify pulling ads and, and pulling budget from Snap. And it certainly doesn't help that, you know, it has staked its uh, future on augmented reality, which is an even more experimental format for a lot of advertisers. Snap does have something um, that Meta and Twitter have really struggled to articulate, and that is a long-term vision. Um, But having a long-term vision is not really a way to help it in the short term. And Snap really has to turn things around now if it wants to make its vision a reality.
2: Do you think augmented reality is, is uh, more likely, Do, are you more optimistic about the future
3: of augmented reality than virtual reality? So I think augmented reality holds a lot of long-term promise, especially among the audience that is using Snapchat. Um, We are already seeing young users communicate with each other um, and entertain each other through AR filters. We are seeing some brands and some consumers lean into AR as a shopping tool, and I believe that that will continue to grow. I don't necessarily believe it's going to reach mass adoption, but I do think that it's becoming more of a utility and will continue to do so over the next couple of years.
2: All right. Jasmine Emberg, Insider Intelligence. Thank you, as always, Jasmine, for your insights here. Obviously, lots to continue to watch. Questions are looming about Spotify's profitability after its earnings report. Subscriber growth topping estimates, but it's another one of the many tech companies being hit by a slowdown in ad spend, sending shares down more than 9%. Bloomberg's Ashley Carmen covers Spotify for us. So Ashley, we were talking about Twitter and Meta's struggles, Snap as well, their struggles um, given the ad crisis earlier. How is that impacting Spotify?
4: Yeah, Spotify said that actually its ad revenue also grew this quarter, but more slowly than it anticipated, and it's blaming that on the broader macroeconomic issues that we're seeing.
2: So what kind of troubleshooting are they doing? What are the solutions?
4: It's tricky. I mean, so Daniel Eck, the CEO, says that, and this is true, ad revenue doesn't represent a huge portion of their business. They're obviously mostly a subscriber-based business. So obviously, they want to keep growing those premium subscribers, which they also did this quarter, beating analyst expectations. But at the same time, they really need to keep doubling down on that podcast business because that's where they say they're really benefiting from this advertiser money.
2: Apple seems to be the enemy in the conversations about social media advertising, and I wonder where where does Apple Music, Spotify's main competitor, fit in?
4: Yeah, there's been a couple interesting developments that are Apple-related this quarter, or I guess for this past quarter, in Apple World. So first off, Apple Music raised its prices this week, and of course, Daniel Leck was asked about that on the earnings call, and he says they're going to have conversations about raising their prices in turn. They just have to go to their label partners and have those conversations, and then also that Spotify came out kind of they've always been talking about Apple and antitrust and kind of the app store fees that they have to pay. And recently, in September, Spotify launched audiobooks on the platform. And originally, you could, I mean, it was a bit of a pain, but you could buy audiobooks through the app. You would get the price and the purchase link emailed to you. So in that way, it was kind of going around Apple's app store fees. But now on iOS, you can't purchase them at all. So Spotify came out saying, you know, they're really unhappy with this experience. And on Google, you can still kind of have that odd emailed system, but at least you can buy audiobooks.
2: What is next for podcasts and audio streaming? You know, I think there are still some questions that remain about just how big the podcasting advertising market really is. Yeah, so we've seen a lot of these big players like iHeartMedia and Spotify
4: and Cumulus really try to bolster their podcast businesses and focus on programmatic advertising. So really bringing in these big brands, the Coca-Colas, the Geicos, and get them to spend in podcasting, an industry we typically think of as like the Casper mattresses and the direct response advertisers. So that's really what these big companies are focusing on, is bringing them into the mix, even as the economy maybe is taking a downturn.
2: Can you give us the latest on uh, Daniel Ek more broadly? I mean, it feels like just yesterday he was you know, making a bid for the Arsenal football team and now his company is going through some significant struggles. What has that meant for some of his other aspirations? You know, I'm not totally sure how
4: it's, it's changed his other goals. I will say that he doesn't, in the earnings call, project any sort of concern about or any sort of struggles for the company. He really sees it as, hey, we've told you we're pursuing podcasting, we're pursuing audiobooks, we need to make some necessary investments into those space in order to eventually continue to grow and have a better gross margin. So he views this as, like, charting the course. Obviously, investors have kind of turned on the company, though.
2: All right, uh, well... More to write, uh, I'm sure, more to the story. Bloomberg's Ashley Carmen, thank you for weighing in. Coming up, our conversation with Mobilize CEO and founder on the heels of the first day as a public company. That is next. This is Bloomberg.
5: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop.
2: Intel's Mobileye unit, which develops software and self-driving technology, just started trading on Wall Street. Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow caught up with Mobileye CEO and founder, Amnon Shashua, earlier. Take a
6: listen. Our plan is to to, to view the spectrum from driving assist to to fully autonomous driving, say, robotaxis, as a spectrum of solutions. And uh, we started with a base uh, solution, which is you know, our our silicon connected to 11 cameras surrounding uh, the car, seven long range and four parking cameras. All this information is being used for an eyes on, you know, hands free uh, driving. And then through a modular expansion, by adding uh, active uh, sensors to create eyes off uh, solutions with expanding operational design domains. So for example, you know, you start with this camera built. add a front facing ladder, you can enable eyes off autonomy on highways. Add corner radars, you can enable lane changes and uh, light traffic. Add imaging radars, you can enable lane changes and condensed traffic, unprotected turns. Add a teleoperation, you get a robotaxi. So it creates a spectrum of uh, solutions and we have been already shipping this base system. We have already 50,000 cars already with the base system.
0: Right. How critical is China to the growth story for your business? Do you see the business growing with pace in China, which is a really important global auto
6: market? Now, When we look at China, there were two attractive things there. One is the market itself. Now, market share in China has been growing over the years substantially. But more importantly, we found that China is slightly more tech forward than the rest of the world. And, and we, we took advantage of putting our latest innovation starting in China. This system that I mentioned before with 11 cameras, it's called SuperVision, already shipped in in, in China. And then generating interest uh, with other uh, OEMs, Western OEMs, and in the past five months, we started getting significant uh, traction with six OEMs already designed in to this, uh, to this base system called the uh, SuperVision going forward from 2023 up to 2025.
0: What about doing business going forward? We know about the trade restrictions when it comes to technology in China. Do you see the need to build new partnerships in that market?
6: Now we have, we have multiple partnerships in, in, in that market. Uh, we are less concerned about our type of uh, product. Oh, like the IQ chip is not a supercomputer. It's not programmable, you know, you cannot put it on a data center and write any code uh, you like. It's really, really purpose-built to sit in a car with mobilized uh, code. So we don't see our chip at the forefront of, you know, export uh, controls. Um, so we are focusing on, you know, building uh, great products, creating uh, partnerships, uh, using the tech-forward approach to uh, to then migrate this to, uh, to outside of uh, China, and it, it's proving itself quite successfully.
0: Amnon, you and I have been talking about this for years now. Do you really see a business where Mobileye makes money from true autonomy? When does that happen? When does Mobileye start making money as a service provider, not just a maker of chips and system on chips?
6: No, I will tell you what has changed. Kind of in our view, in the past five years, it's not changed, but more nuance is that now, when you talk about autonomy, it's not just robotaxis. Now, there are companies, competitors of ours, that are focused only on robotaxis. Uh, But we see something much more uh, nuanced. And what what I mentioned before, these kinds of autonomous blades, as you go from our base system and adding more active uh, sensors. So a robotaxi is just one end of a long spectrum of uh, solutions, and and we are working on it. it. Means we are at the final stages of certification, homologation of our robotaxi. We have about 10 POCs. Uh, with uh, public transport uh, operators of uh, next year that we made public a few few months ago. Uh, We have a fleet of about 100 vehicles dedicated for those uh, POCs. And the purpose of those POCs is to start building a business model, business model that makes sense for us. We don't want to be capex heavy. We want to go forward with this service idea with partners where we supply the self-driving system or the self-driving vehicle and our partners will take, uh, you know, will do the service themselves, could be using our software to be licensed to them, but they, they have the expertise, the financial know-how of how to manage right. fleets of vehicles. It's not an area that we want to, to be active in.
2: Mobileye CEO and founder there with Bloomberg's Ed Ledlow. You can catch that full interview at Bloomberg.com. Welcome back to Bloomer Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. I want to get back to Meta's results. Our Ed Ludlow has been listening in to the call. Ed, what are we hearing?
0: Yeah, there's a lot of explanation about why costs and operating expenses are going to be higher in the near term before they kind of relook at the budget in the future. They're talking about dramatically slower, slowing the rate of hiring. In the third quarter, they added about 3,700 people. Despite what we heard last month, right, about Zuckerberg really pushing to cut costs, there's going to continue to be infrastructure investments in AI. Why? Well, Meta, previously Facebook, has always said it needs to invest in AI to improve the algorithms that power the core Facebook platform um, as well as that transition to the metaverse and this one's for you this jumped out me I've been blogging about this on the Bloomberg top live blog Instagram and whatsapp now each have 2 billion users and when that headline hit The market didn't do anything. We're still down more than 15% in after hours. You remember, right, when that was everything. How is Instagram going to drive growth in the future? How are we going to monetize WhatsApp? I haven't heard anything about that in ages, and yet Zuckerberg and his prepared remarks kind of leads with that. I think it's very telling about the story they're trying to tell right now.
2: Indeed, but of course a lot happening under the hood. Ed Ludlow, thank you. Meantime, Meta criticized Apple over new changes to its App Store, which takes a cut of social media advertising revenue. Our Mark Gurman, of course, covers all things Apple. Mark, this has been happening for a while, but remind us how these changes, you know, what the intention of these changes was and how they're working in practice.
7: So two years ago, Apple announced a feature called ATT, or App Tracking Transparency. And what this does is it throws up a pop-up to users before it'll before the system will allow an application to track you for advertising based purposes across different applications and different websites. And so from Apple's perspective, all this pop-up does is puts that permission in the hands of the user. It sounds pretty simple. But from the perspective of Meta, of Snapchat, of Twitter, of other social media platforms, that makes their advertising a lot less powerful and makes it so advertisers are going to be paying a lot less and for Facebook and these companies to make a lot less money. And it's interesting to me that Facebook went on the offensive yesterday uh, regarding the latest changes to the App Store rules right ahead of their earnings, which, as we see right now, are fairly disappointing uh, to Wall Street, right, and investors and such. But from what we understand from Meta and from other people we've spoken to, the latest string of changes related to Apple wanting a 30% cut or a commission on boosts, which is a type of advertising within Facebook and other platforms, uh, it's not really going to have a material impact uh, on Meta at least.
2: What's our sense of how much these Apple changes specifically are impacting, let's say, Facebook or Instagram and how much Apple is benefiting from these
7: changes? So from what we've seen so far in terms of a financial standpoint, Apple really is not benefiting from these changes uh, in any way. The company is working on uh, its own new advertising push. You may have seen in the app store now, they've added a couple new ad slots, but that doesn't really impact Meta. It wasn't like Meta was previously able to advertise within the App Store. Uh, Apple's also going to bring advertisements, I'm told, to the maps application. That really doesn't, you know, impact Meta either because Apple is going to be the only provider of ads within that platform, right? So Apple's not really benefiting here, but Meta is certainly losing. I remember a couple of years ago they threw out a $10 billion estimate related to the impact there. Some people have said that $10 billion actually is related to uh, the reality labs, their VR unit, right? And you've seen the losses there are piling up. So it's not exactly cut and dry how much these companies are losing. There clearly is a significant financial impact. Uh, last night, it was actually at a conference in Laguna Beach, and Craig Federighi, the head of software, who was pretty instrumental in the development of ATT and other privacy features, was, that, was asked about this, and he said they really didn't consider uh, the financial impact that uh, this would have on other companies when implementing the feature, their standpoint clearly is, Hmm. from a user perspective, throwing up that permission sheet.
2: Well, you do have the skeptics who might think, well, doesn't Apple have all this data and are they going to build their own, you know, social, you know, advertising juggernaut on the back of, you know, all of this information that they're now preventing other companies from having access to?
7: That's an extremely fair point. I, I made the same point uh, in a recent column for Power On. And By the way, anyone listening to this should subscribe, uh, Bloomberg.com slash Power On. And that is true. They are building an advertising juggernaut themselves. They want to push ads eventually to an ad-supported tier of TV+. They could theoretically put ads in iTunes and Apple Music across many of their services. The App Store is getting more advertisements now. Apple Maps, like I said, is going to get advertisements. Uh, they throw ads in between uh, you know, plays and the MLB integration for the TV+. app, right? So clearly they are pushing there. Clearly they are collecting data. right? So Apple is collecting data on users. They say, however, they are following the same protocols they are requiring uh, from developers too. But that is definitely something to take a look at and definitely something we'll re-examine once these new advertising slots hit Apple Maps, TV Plus, and other Apple software in the future. And we'll see the difference in the technology they're using between Meta and Apple. And if Apple really is uh, taking a, a different standpoint and using different methodology, they say they are. Everything we've seen so far is that they are. Uh, and at this point, we have no reason not to believe them. But clearly, it does seem a bit hypocritical on the surface.
2: Okay. Mark Erman, as always, thank you. I want to continue this conversation now with Techonomy founder David Kirkpatrick, of course, who wrote the book on Facebook back in the day. David, when you look at these recent meta numbers, you hear about the changes that, you know, the impact that a company like Apple is having, Does it just boggle your mind how how different Meta is today than the company that you started covering, what now, 15 years ago?
8: It's shockingly different, but it's shockingly different than it was a year ago, as Jasmine Engward was saying earlier on your program It is amazing to think of the essentially steady decline this company has experienced in a lot of different ways ever since they changed their name and declared that they were preparing for the metaverse future. Um, It is really stunning, though, looking at what's happened today. I mean, the stock was down 60% before today's action, and today— since this morning the stock is down more than 20 percent in one day and last i checked after hours it was still declining it's it was 108 something just a second ago you know this is a company whose stock was 380 something very very recently um it is just stunning i mean and but it's it's i think a lot of it can be traced to essentially an absence of governance, uh, they, they just most companies have a more collaborative managerial approach, where a board actually gets to tell the CEO what they think. That is not the case here.
2: An absence of governance or an over ambitious, overreaching Mark Zuckerberg.
8: Well, obviously, those two things go together. Um, Mark Zuckerberg is a brilliant leader and a great product person and I think really a, a genius in many ways, but he is obsessed with the wrong thing. One of the other things that Jasmine Engbert said that I thought was really interesting was this idea that a lot of social media innovation is underway right now. But so what did this company do? Uh, instead of trying to innovate more in social media, they decided to innovate in something completely new. Uh, If they had been spending all this money they've been spending on the metaverse to try to come up with new social media products, especially at a time when they're not allowed to buy anything by regulators, that would probably have been a way more uh, advantageous approach and much more acceptable to investors.
2: Uh, gotta ask you, since we saw Elon Musk walking into Twitter headquarters today with a kitchen sink, and Twitter could be a private company in 48 hours. Um, how do you think Elon Musk and, and Zuckerberg, who actually I know you know they're, they don't like each other very much, but interesting. Um, uh, I, 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 I'm curious how you compare their approaches.
8: Well, you got to give Musk credit for having a sense of humor. Uh- <laughs> I mean, the kitchen sink <laughs> could mean is a lot is of the,
2: But is this, is this in good taste? Not that, you know, he's known for that. Especially if 75% what, of the company, are, they're going to lose too- their jobs.
8: Well, that's true. I, look, I'm not saying it's it, you should make light of the fact that possibly thousands of people at Twitter are going to lose their jobs. I absolutely don't think that. But, you know, business is generally too self-important and has too grave of a view of itself. And this is an aspect of, of Elon Musk that I actually kind of appreciate. He tries to just be an ordinary person going about his day, you know, changing the world and buying companies for $45 billion. So, you know, it is amusing. You can't deny he there was an interview in the Financial Times over the weekend where he was asked, what are you doing? And he said, aren't you amused? That was his response. He wants to amuse us. And look, it is at the cost sometimes of some serious people that have real consequences. But on. Well, now, right. And it's I not just the people, the people innovator. which
2: are really important, What about public discourse? Are you at all concerned? Like the future of public discourse is not a joke and shouldn't be uh, treated like a joke, right?
8: It's impossible not to be concerned, but we really don't know what he's going to do. He said so many different things. A lot of them are impractical. Some of them, as I've mentioned on the show before, are appealing to me, like giving genuine identity to users. Um, I don't view it as a potential unmitigated disaster that Elon Musk might control Twitter. It sounds like an idiotic disaster to lay off 75 percent of the employees because I can't imagine the company could continue to operate responsibly if that were to occur. And I on- honestly don't expect that to happen. It's the kind of thing he says shooting from the hip, uh, you know, we'll have to watch. You know, Twitter is a company that needed radical surgery. They're certainly going to get it. I don't think any of us can really know what happens next. Even Elon Musk.
2: Well, it's all gonna all gonna sink in over time, David. We are not gonna let the sink puns go. Um, <laughs> David Kirkpatrick, Techonomy Founder, uh, as always, good to have you. Hey. today's crypto report we're diving into the investing behaviors of women a new report finding that one in ten women are choosing crypto as their first investment this is part of blockfi's real talk survey and here to discuss blockfi co-founder flori marquez so flori talk to us about the big takeaways here there were some pri- some surprising results
9: Hey, Emily, it's great to see you again. And there were surprising results, and some are good and some kind of signal to me what are things that we need to continue to work on. But the key takeaway is that women that are invested in crypto are resilient in this bear market. However, we did also see that there was a generational gap amongst women who feel financially secure in their investment strategies and those who do not. And specifically, we saw that that gap was between millennial women, who tend to feel more financially secure, and then Gen X tends to be the least financially secure. And so I think what's important about these surveys is we're looking to understand the differences between different behaviors so that we can really get to where is the pain point and how can we try to solve that. And so high level, there's definitely a gap. Yeah, go ahead
2: well exactly it's like well what are you going to do with this information now that you have this information i mean it sort of makes sense that gen xers might feel less secure if they have
9: more responsibilities right definitely and i think there's also just a a generational gap just in terms of understanding of technology right Um, depending on what technology was available when you grew up with your comfortability with different apps and so i'm a huge believer in really understanding your consumer base and in order to address a problem, you have to understand that not all consumers are the same. And people need different types of information presented to them in different ways in order to get comfortable with crypto. And so at BlockFi, we focus on three key areas. The first is accessibility, and that's everything from how is your app designed, what is the experience like, all the way down to what, what is client success like? Can you pick up the phone and talk to someone if that's what you need to feel comfortable? The second is really understanding through data, which is what we're diving into today. You can't solve a problem if you don't really understand what's driving it. And the third is leading by example. I really believe that you can't be what you can't see. And so I think as a woman, we have to be out here talking in the open and really making this industry a lot more approachable to people who have historically been excluded from financial services, investments, and then crypto.
2: Well, speaking of the industry obviously, uh, well, a lot has changed with the crypto crash. And I'm curious how that's changing your business model, specifically the institutional lending market. How much has BlockFi's role in that market changed, especially given some of the big collapses that we've seen? And how is, how is your role in it evolving?
9: So one of the things that um, came out of this summer is a couple of things. There was a shift in the market dynamic. So Previous to the events of this summer, it was really a borrower's market. And now that the activity is really concentrated on the few players that are left, BlockFi included, it has become a lender's market. But I think one of the biggest things that comes out of this summer is really the entire industry's approach to risk. And at BlockFi, we took major steps in terms of educating the clients and the ecosystem in order to make sure that people truly understand what the risks in this platform. And I also believe that you do need robust risk management frameworks if you want to be a regulated entity. And so the three things that we did were we increased our public disclosures on risk management. Um, our CRO is out in the open much more. He hosted a Reddit AMA. And lastly, um, we continue to release our quarterly financials, including our overall risk exposure on our website. And so. We're definitely in the early stages for crypto, and I've said this for a long time. And much more maturation needs to happen. But we are committed to listen, to learn, and to continuously improve.
2: All right, Flori Marquez, co-founder of always got BlockFi. Uh, Flori, always good to have you here. Thank you for stopping by. Coming up, a sneak peek of my Studio 1.0 sit down with DoorDash CEO Tony Hsu, talking about the future of the gig economy and so much more. This is Bloomberg.
5: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in.
2: After going public at the height of the pandemic, DoorDash is dealing with its first major economic downturn. Shares of the food delivery giant are down some 68% this year. I spoke with DoorDash CEO and co-founder Tony Shute about how the company is navigating the headwinds of change.
10: It was certainly very exciting. It was exhilarating. You know, it was the first time that, you know, our company went public. (laughs) First time that I had ever um, Mm -hmm. undergone any of those types of experiences before. But at the, you know, in the back of my head, you know, it was that saying that you're never as good or as bad as they say you are. And so just remember that.
2: So tease that out for me a little bit because the big question is how much do customers keep ordering out in a high inflation environment? How much long-term you know, sustainability and growth is there really.
10: Even though COVID is now effectively sustained and we understand how to live with it, customers are continuing to order. Those that joined us during the pandemic, they're still ordering at about the same rates as those who joined us before the pandemic. And that's because eating out and getting things delivered are pretty complimentary. On the second point around inflation, you know, I can say that in the last 60 years in, in looking at the data, spend in restaurants and in grocery have only declined in two of those 60 years, including high inflationary times, much higher than what we observe today. And so what I think I take, um, you know, solace in, even though I see the fact that there is high inflation, is that customers are going to continue spending on food. and our job is to bring greater and greater affordability.
2: More broadly, the economy is in a tough position. Uh, Your competitors have announced layoffs and hiring freezes and slowdowns. Is DoorDash considering any of these?
10: I think we've been fortunate, mostly because most of our investments that happened during the pandemic really were meant to build new businesses, mm-hmm. and those new businesses have continued to grow. New businesses, you know, beyond restaurants in categories like grocery, convenience, um, or retail. Um, new businesses overseas. You know, we announced a large acquisition uh, in Volt, where that really helped double our overall addressable market to 700 million people. New businesses in building an advertising business. New businesses expanding our services and building a platform to help businesses build their own digital operations.
2: Do you see DoorDash as more of a super app of the future, or is it something different?
10: Well, I I see DoorDash as really solving two problems. You know, problem one is how do we bring incremental demand to all the physical businesses as they kind of figure out their own digital in-house capabilities, and the second problem we're trying to solve is bring tools to these businesses.
2: There's still a lot of competition in delivery. Who do you think survives the delivery wars? Who doesn't, and why?
10: Well, is a scale economies game. You know, at the end of the day, you can survive even doing deliveries from a singular store. You know, there's still mom and pop pizza shops and Chinese restaurants that do their own delivery.
2: Do you see DoorDash as a challenger to like Walmart, Amazon?
10: Well, I see DoorDash, um, you know, as a champion of local businesses and physical businesses. I don't think that a world in which we just get what we want to buy or consume for a few places is a world that, again, is as worth enjoying living in. (laughs) So our job is to make sure that all of these businesses, all of the millions of physical businesses globally, can continue to compete.
2: I do a lot of DoorDash. Helps me be a working mom. Whenever I interview you, I get pings from Dashers. And some of them say they don't get paid enough. Some of them seem pretty angry. What's your response to them?
10: We want the local economy to grow and to thrive. That includes dashers. We have three million dashers that come to the platform every single quarter, and so it's really important to me what they say. And it's in fact why you know the company, myself included, we still dash do deliveries. In other words, once a month. It's you why, still do deliveries yeah, once why, a month. It's why we have a dasher community council that we started three, four years ago now. I want to see it, one
2: of your memos after it, a delivery. Are you like sending notes? I'm to, texting. To head you know, <laughs> it's not even after the delivery. I'm
10: texting. You know, it, it, well, not texting while I'm driving, but te- t- t- texting after after I complete the order.
2: From your deliveries? What have you learned?
10: Everything. All of the details, everything from, you know, pay considerations, um, um, everything from um, operations at a store, you know, which stores are a bit faster in their operations or more consistent, which Mm -hmm. stores are are less consistent, Mm -hmm. where do you find the last parking space in downtown San Francisco? (laughs) Um, All of these details matter. Mm -hmm. They matter for efficiency, Mm -hmm. they matter for driver pay, they matter for merchant earnings and so as a result you know what i say to dashers is please continue to talk to me i'm just tony at doordash and we're always trying to you know make things better we're not saying that we're perfect but when we look at um you know the data that we've collected you know the average dasher is making 24 25 an hour nationwide when they're on when they're doing deliveries
2: from silicon valley to wall street the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage